You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning with me. Great to have you visiting with us. If you're a visitor, uh, we have some visitor cards on the backs of the chairs in front of you. If you would fill one of those out and drop it into the wooden boxes that are attached on the wall in the back of the sanctuary, we would love to contact you and... Uh, Recognize that you are here visiting with us this morning. We are studying through the book of 1 Corinthians verse by verse, and this morning brings us to another tough section of Scripture. Yay! So we are going to be looking at lawsuits against or lawsuits between believers. And uh, it's just been interesting. It's been good. Um, But let's pray, and we will get into the text this morning. Dear Jesus, I do ask that you would speak to us through your word this morning, as you so faithfully always do. We pray that the Holy Spirit would just take these words, lift them off of the pages, and write them in our hearts. We pray that the lessons that you have for us would be learned. And Lord Jesus, we realize that we are all a work in progress. We are under construction, so to speak. And so, Lord, we just ask and pray today that you would be gracious to us and be merciful to us. And Father, that you would help us where we need help. And in our weakness, Lord, that you would spur us on to pursue righteousness. And Lord, we just ask that this church would be a church that is a pure bride, that is uh, seeking you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, how many of you guys have been watching the Olympics recently? A bunch of you, okay, quite a few of you. Think less this service than the last service, but uh, I've been watching some of the Olympics as well, and it was interesting to me to find out how many of the Olympic athletes are have dual citizenship. Uh, it seems that if uh, some of them don't quite make the team, the Olympic team in one country, it seems they transfer citizenship to a different and make it there if they can. Um, quite interesting. But speaking of dual citizenship. My children, uh, three of my children have dual citizenship. They're Costa Rican citizens as well as United States citizens. And uh, that was quite a process for us going through that uh, uh, residency process there in Costa Rica and obtaining residency in a foreign country. I have a heart of compassion for those that move to the United States and are going through that process of becoming uh, United States citizens and residents. I understand what it's like to get a green card. Um, and it is... It is a horrible process, and so very difficult to have a heart for those that are going through that. But stick with it. The government will eventually come around to coming true on those promises uh, if you stick with it and persevere. But uh, speaking of dual citizenship, uh, the reason I bring it up is because you as a believer this morning are a dual citizen. Whether you know that or not, you're a dual citizen of earth and heaven And uh, it is in that vein that I want to remind us that we today are uh, called by the scriptures to live out uh, or to live by the principles of our future reality. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he's dealing with a second scandalous issue in the church in Corinth. The first issue was the issue of sexual immorality. This one is about lawsuits between believers in the church. And once again, I want to point out to us all, That as Paul deals with these issues, hey, his underlying motive for doing this is love, okay? It is always love from a pure heart that prompts him to write these things. He loves the Lord, and he loves the Lord's people. And because of that, he's writing these things down. 
Now, for us here in Western culture, this is going to be a difficult message because it's difficult for us to understand why it is scandalous for believers to go to court against one another. Because we live in a sue happy society. We live in a society where lawsuits are very normal. Um, there is lawsuits for everything and anything that you can imagine. And, and it's, a, it's just an interesting culture that we live in. But the reason, another reason for it is, is that we also live in this society where our human rights are so closely tied to material possessions and to money. And so we really tie ourselves in and grab on really tightly to property and property rights and, and financial rights and those sorts of things. And, and that's one of the reasons why today's message is going to be particularly challenging for us. Uh, we're going to be challenged to ask ourselves the same questions that Paul is asking and to examine our hearts in regards to what is our perspective on this temporary world that we're living in. You see, believers must live in the present tense by the principles of our future reality. And that's the main point that Paul is making as he deals with this scandal in the church. Paul wants the church to understand our dual citizenship. He wants us to become the people of God that we already are by God's grace. The first point this morning, if you're following along on your outline, is Paul giving us a word about lawsuits and believers, verses 1 through 6. Now, he uses a series of questions that he lays out as the structure for teaching about this issue. And so I want to follow the questions and extract the lessons. The first question in verse 1, Paul is telling us what the basic problem is with this question. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Once again, Paul's tone here is one of horror. He cannot believe the report that has been shared about what is happening there in the church, and he's horrified by the, belief, by the behavior of certain members of the family of God. Now, we need to understand here that Paul... Uh, What is exactly that he's referring to? Well, he's not talking about a gross violation of the law, like murder or a child molestation case or something like that. If there's a criminal act, if if someone flagrantly breaks the laws of the land in any church and causes bodily harm, hey, listen, the police should be called. (laughs) The reports should be given. Offenders should be delivered to the justice system so that they can receive their due process. And I've shared this with you before. Uh, if there's an abusive situation in the home between a husband and a wife, call the police, ladies, if you need to. Uh, that's why we have them. So do it. Don't hesitate. You should call the police on that, on that guy. Uh, and, and then bring him over here, and we'll take care. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I don't want to get prideful. Give some big old guy coming in here and beating me up. This is something I said. But, but listen... When it comes to the justice system of our country, we should thank God for it. Christians need to realize that it has been appointed to its place in our society by God. Now, we realize also that there there are a lot of failings in our justice system because we do live in a fallen world. But we have to realize it was God who formed government in the first place in the book of Genesis. And he empowered government to execute justice. He gave it the sword, so to speak. God is the one who established capital punishment, if you study the book of Genesis, and he did so for a couple of major reasons. First of all, capital punishment is God's way of preserving the highest dignity possible for human life. 
The Bible teaches that you and I have been made in the image of God. And, and that doesn't, it doesn't matter, uh, you know, we're all made in the image of God. That is a Christian principle, and we need to stand upon that. And if the image of God is marred by the taking of a person's life, listen, then that murderer's life is forfeit according to capital punishment, according to what God established in government. Secondly, because God understands the reality of evil, he established it as a deterrent to evildoers. You see, capital punishment is the strongest deterrent to evildoers in any system of justice. When you take it away, uh, you will see the results of that in a society. Paul himself teaches us in other passages that government is, it has been given to us, and we are to submit to the authority of government. Uh, Paul himself was subject to the justice system of the Romans and received a fair judgment from them, for which I'm sure he's grateful. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what's my point in saying all that? My point is saying that 1 Corinthians chapter 6 should not be taken as a prohibition against all uh, going to law against other believers. Okay? There are going to be cases when it is going to be okay, and, and we have to realize that. But uh, what is he talking about? Well, Paul is talking about, in the context here, he's talking about civil action cases. Not criminal cases, but civil action cases. And he's talking about this because what's happening is they were airing the dirty laundry, so to speak. The dirty laundry issues of the church. They were giving the church a black eye. The testimony of the church was receiving a black eye because of these believers' actions. He's talking about broken relationships over petty offenses. And he's talking about arguments and disputes about property and material items that are only temporary. Paul's shock is expressed here because he can't believe that believers would drag one another into a court system where they're being arbitrated by men who were not spiritually enlightened. Men who did not understand the moral character of God. And that he is the moral lawgiver. And therefore, we're not able to uh, uh, you know, have that spiritual discernment. In the following verses, we will see Paul continue to lay out some questions for the church. And that are, these questions are specifically meant to minimize lawsuits and to minimize the courts in light of the prophetic future of the church. Check out what he says. Uh, the next part here, questions 2 through 5. Paul is giving us the greater picture. Look at verse 2. He says... Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? So with the second question, Paul points out a presupposed reality about the future of you and me, of the church. He gets this from the Old Testament, from several passages, but one I will mention is from Daniel chapter 7, verse 22, when we uh, hear or we read that uh, the, the kingdom will be delivered to the Ancient of Days. That's a title for the Messiah. And then it says that the Messiah is going to deliver his kingdom to his saints. That's us, the saints. Also, the Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6 that God, or Jesus Christ, has made us, the church, kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So again, the Bible tells us this. Jesus also taught this in the parable of the talents. And, and, and he says that, you know, that when, when they uh, were giving those talents back to him when he had returned from his, uh, uh, his uh, being away from them, the one that had five talents had gained five more. And he said, appoint him over ten cities. Okay, that was Jesus teaching that, listen, we are going to have positions of responsibility in the kingdom. 
when Jesus returns to the earth. Now, Paul assumes here that this is true. He assumes that all believers are going to inherit. They're going to possess the kingdom of Jesus. They're going to be put in positions in which they will serve the Lord as they rule over the earth through uh, this participation with the Lord. We'll eventually inherit the world, and and we're going to eventually uh, be judging or we're going to be factored into God's judging of the world through us. Now listen, I hope that that adds a new dimension to your understanding this morning, to your understanding of the church and why it is so important to be a part of the local church. I hope that also adds to your understanding of how amazing God is and what he has for the future, his, his perspective of you. God has a, a perspective of you that he's saying, listen, I'm preparing you. I'm preparing your character. I'm shaping you now for a position that you're going to hold later. That is amazing to me. You see, in this life, this one life that you've been given, God is doing things in you because later he's going to do things through you. And it's important that we understand that and we surrender to the Holy Spirit in our lives and allow God to do those works in our life. Now, in light of this fact about judging the world in the future... Paul asks the third question. He says, And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? So in light of the future reality, Paul says, of believers in the church, you need to be able to settle these things. You need to be able to make the right call when it comes to disputes over temporary things like property and money. You know, this is something that that should goad the church a little bit. This is something that should stir us up. We need to realize that this is, uh, it's ridiculous to be fighting over things that are temporary, like property. This is where we as a church are going to be challenged in our understanding of what holds value and what needs to be let go of. And I will admit it, this is not going to be easy, guys. We live in a country where so much of our rights as human beings are tied into possessions and to property and into wealth. Wealth management is what about 50% of the commercials on TV seem to be about these days. But Paul's horror is partly due to the fact that these believers in Corinth were willing to put property rights and money issues above and beyond the reality of eternity. They were willing to put it above and beyond the testimony of the church in their community. And Paul says, that's not right. That's wrong. That's not right. You know, Job said it true, and he said it best when he said this. He said, naked I came into the world, and naked I will leave it. Hey, you came into this world in your birthday suit. You're going to leave it in your birthday suit as well, guys. You can't take anything with you. We need to internalize that truth. We need to realize that what matters in eternity is not property and possessions, but people and character. So what are you living for? What are you living for? Are you overemphasizing possessions to the fault of neglecting your character development? The character that God wants to form in you that's going to last for eternity? Or are you squabbling over possessions and temporary things? Believers must live in the present tense by the principles of our future reality. Paul's going to follow this up with yet another question that speaks to the future reality of the church in verse 3. He says it, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? 
Again, this is another presupposition from Paul. It's rooted in the Old Testament theology, but it's also found in the New Testament as well. And as Christians who belong to the church, we will one day inherit all things that pertain to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches us that. And it seems that in that inheritance, we're going to be given a position that is even greater than that of the angels. Now, angels and humans are two totally different created classes. Okay, Angels are created as spirit beings. They have no flesh nature. So they're basically complete as they are. And the way that an angel is tested is totally different than the way that the humans are tested and developed. Okay, a, 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 An angel, basically theologians believe that all of the angels were created. And then they went through a period of testing in which they were to choose where their loyalties would lie. Now we know that Satan looked at the throne of God and he desired to be God himself. He had a pride problem. And so it seems that angels are tested in this area of pride. And, and we're, we're taught in Revelation that Satan and one-third of the angels decided that they would war against God, that they were going to fight and, and to try to become you know, like God themselves. And so they, those are the fallen angels. The others chose to serve the Lord and to maintain their position as servants of God. Okay, so that was their period of testing. But listen... Us as humans, we go through an entire mortal lifetime being tested by three things. The flesh, our own flesh, the passage and desires of our flesh. We're tested by the world, the temptations that are in it. And we're tested by the enemy, this Satan and his fallen angels. And so while these angels are testing us, and we're, our character is being formed. You see, as the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation as it is preached, and as we trust in it and we believe, we are uh, uh, shaped and formed into the image of Jesus Christ. And as we go through this lifetime, our character being formed, we have a potential to love the Lord on a much deeper and greater level than the angels do. And so that's why it's believed that when we enter into the afterlife, when we receive our immortal bodies that we're going to have so much greater capacity to love and to grow in our love for the Lord. And so, you know, I know I'm digressing right now. I'm kind of getting off the track. But the point is, is that at some point when we receive our immortal bodies, we're going to receive this station that's actually going to be greater than the angels. We're going to be judging the angels sometime, at some point in the history or in the future of our history. Paul assumes that, and he knows that. Now, he continues on, he goes on, and he says, How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? So Paul wants to know why the church isn't taking things as seriously as they should. He's kind of goading them into you know, taking care of the problem. He's going, guys, don't you have somebody that can take care of this? Isn't there somebody in the church that's appointed to judge these matters? And listen, this is a good question. This is a good question that we need to ask ourselves. Now listen, I want to tell you guys here at Calvary Chapel of Paris that we have a board of elders. There's six men. I'm one of them. I'm the president of that board. And, and, and I lead that board as a pastor. I, I'm, I'm leading that board before the Lord. But we are, hopefully, spiritual men that are willing and able to hear these matters. 
we exist for this purpose in, in a sense, that we could be those that help to steer the church when it comes to you know, fighting and situations within the church where there needs to be a decision made. But what so often happens is somebody will come to us and they say, well, here's the situation and I'm right. And so here's what I want you to do. And so we'll go, okay, well, would you be willing to sit down and to talk about this with the other person in the room? Well, it depends. Well, would you be willing to be subject to the decision that the board of elders reaches collectively? Would you be subject to that decision? Well, it depends on what the decision is. Well, then we might as well not even have a meeting, brother or sister, because if you're not willing to submit to the authority of church leadership, then we're wasting our time. But listen, this, this needs to happen. This, this, this should be something that the church has. And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, you need to take this seriously. And you need to have a, a body that is willing to sit down and to decide in these matters when there is infighting in the church. They should not have to take that outside of the church where somebody who maybe doesn't have a spiritual discernment is passing judgment on them. Now he transitions in the next two verses to address the whole church in a general sense now with question number six there in verses five and six. And his point in question number six is he's basically saying, shame on the church. Verse five, he says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Again, you should have an exclamation point in the text there in your Bible after that word unbelievers. And that's because it sets the tone. The Greek language, the tone here in Paul's writing is one of incredulities. He can't believe this. He's, he's ashamed. And he asks the rhetorical question about if there's a wise man in the church spurring them to handle this matter in their own turf. Listen, guys, he's just saying, look, you could pick, you could pick one of the moms. She could handle this. I, I, I was at home the other day sick, you know, at the house. And my wife, she homeschools. And so I overheard some of the things that she was going through with the kids and the conversation she was having. And I can't believe how many times she has to make a judgment call during the course of a day. It's amazing. The kids come to her with everything. Mom, he did this to me. What are we going to do about that? How can we fix this problem? And, you know, they've got all these complaints. They've got all these little, you know, <laughs> civil action cases, we might call them. And there's Rebecca, man. She's like a, a lawyer, man, just handling it. Well, this you do that, and why did he say that, and where's your heart at on that, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, she's handling it. You know, she could be a judge. I think I'm going to vote for her on February 20th here when it comes up. But guys, any one of you mothers, you could, you could make a wise decision over some of these civil action cases that need to take place in the church. You, could, you guys handle it all the time. Surely... We can handle these things in our own midst. Paul is saying we don't need to take these things before unbelievers and blacken the eye of the reputation of the church. The church community in this town needs to be protected. It's a shameful thing when two people who profess to follow Jesus Christ end up in a secular court arguing about temporary matters such as money and possessions. Yet it is so common today, isn't it? It is so common today. You might think that we as Christians, we didn't read God's word or that we didn't really try to follow it very well. We have not understood that we have a dual citizenship in heaven. And as such, 
We're to see this life through different eyes. We're to do things differently when it comes to these disputes among us. We have forgotten that our Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 to 21. He said, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where's your treasure, guys? Where's your treasure? As a church, we need to ask ourselves that question. We need to examine our hearts as individuals. Because we may find that we're clinging to things and putting value on things. And that's not where God is placing value. God is placing value on human souls and on human character. And on the testimony of his church, of his bride. He wants us to be a pure bride. Paul now concludes this section that addresses the scandal of lawsuits within the church by giving them a warning about wrongdoing and believers in verses 7 through 11. And he's going to continue to make his points by asking questions which have obvious answers. In verse 7, we have questions 7 and 8. And, and really, Paul here is he's saying shame on the plaintiff as he asks these questions. He says, now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Wow. Paul's word for the person who is wronged, it's along the lines of turning the other cheek. It's the principle of non-resistance. Again, in light of the eternal reality, Paul is saying being cheated and wronged out of a temporary possession, listen, it's not worth tarnishing the reputation of the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, this is easier said than done, no doubt. If you're following along with me, you're just sitting here going, that is really hard, (laughs) and I'm with you. That is really hard. This is a difficult word to hear. And yet we need to realize it goes hand in hand with what anyone who is called to follow Jesus is called to do. Did not our Lord Jesus Christ himself suffer wrongdoing at the hands of religious people? Don't you think that he had the power to call down angels from heaven and to destroy the people that were pounding nails into his wrists and fixing him to that cross? Oh, you bet he could have done it. When the soldiers came to arrest him, he spoke a word and they fell back because of the power and the authority that he commanded. He could have done it. But Jesus subjected himself out of love for the greater purpose. The greater purpose, which was to die for the sins of the world so that you and I could be saved. You see, there's always a greater purpose when a Christian follows Christian teaching. When a Christian follows the word of God and we lay our lives down, we deny ourselves, we take up the cross and we follow Jesus every day. It's not easy to do, but Jesus did it, Paul did it, all of the apostles did. Consider the apostle Peter's words when he wrote, he said, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. You see, it is better to suffer a wrongdoing in the name of Jesus Christ and in that way to glorify God than to lash out in vengeance and hatred like the world does. Again, 
This is just challenging teaching. It's not going to be easy. That's why we have to remember to abide in Jesus Christ. Only through abiding in Christ are we able to do this. If we do it in our own strength, we'll fail every time. But it doesn't change the fact that we're called to do that. Now, we're called to live in the present tense by the principles of our future reality. Paul continues there in verses 8 through 10 with his ninth question. And in these verses, he's, his point is he's, he's shaming now the wrongdoer. He's, he's, he's saying shame on the wrongdoer at this point. Before he was talking about the plaintiff, now he's talking about the wrongdoer. In verse 8, he says, No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. You, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul now directs his attention away from the plaintiff, the one who had suffered the wrong done. And he's now talking to the person that did the wrong. You see, there are people in the church that have this attitude that they can do things wrong. They can be an evildoer and get away with it. There are, there are Christians who think, well, I'm going to go ahead and do this because the Bible says you can't take me to court. And so because of that, they, they act out and they do these things. Guess what, guys? Man, Paul gives a very strong warning here to people like that. He gives a very strong warning here to anybody in the church who is practicing a lifestyle of sin. He gives us a list there of ten sins. And interestingly enough, if you compare the list with the one that he gave in chapter 5, it contains all the same sins, but there's an amplification of the sexually immoral sins. So six of the sins we've already covered last week in chapter 5. I'm not going to cover those again, but I do want to take a quick look at what he has added in because it's very important for us. He adds in three words there that we need to add to the category of sexually immoral behavior. The first word is adulterer. Now remember, adultery is a sin that's directly tied to lust. It takes place in a person's heart. Jesus taught that clearly. Adultery is not outside the body. It is within your own heart. Jesus taught that in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. You can read it on your own. I've already talked about it extensively a couple of weeks ago. Today, though, I want to look at the other two words as well. He puts in the word homosexual and sodomite. In the Greek language, two separate words. And they refer to both the active and the passive roles of homosexual practice. So, there are some now within Christian circles and within Christian churches who try very hard to make these two words be something other than what they are. But listen, let's not fool ourselves. Let's not deceive ourselves. Let's follow sound principles of biblical interpretation. If the literal sense makes good sense, then, no other, then don't seek another sense lest you come up with nonsense. Let me say it again. If the literal sense makes good sense, then seek no other sense, lest you come up with nonsense. Paul teaches very clearly here, as does Jesus Christ and all Scripture, 
that those who practice a homosexual lifestyle will not inherit the kingdom of God because it is an immoral and sinful lifestyle. Someone might say, well, why are you focusing on that sin? There's 10 of them there. Why are you talking about this one? I'm talking about this one because our culture has made this a culture war. Our culture wants to deny this reality that the Bible teaches this. And so that's why I'm talking about this for a moment this morning. This is not my opinion. It's God's plain word. And God cannot lie. Nor does he change. It is what it is. And we need to realize that there are unfortunately even leaders within the Christian church today who not only embrace this sin, but they teach others that it is okay to their shame. One day we have to realize they will come face to face with our holy God whose morals and character are the same today as they were when Leviticus chapter 18 was penned in the Old Testament. Now, that being said, I also want to say this this morning. God loves the homosexual sinner just as much as he loves the heterosexual adulterer. He desires that all would repent and turn away from sin and turn to Jesus and to be saved. And I want to share with you guys that, hey, I understand sin myself. I understand what it's like to be a sinner. And I want you to know that, hey, we will love and and welcome all sinners to this church. Because we're all sinners ourselves. And we hope and pray that as we study the scriptures and as the Holy Spirit works in your lives, that you come to see what scripture clearly teaches and what God requires. And that as you do that, that God would transform your life and and you would be changed into his image just as I am being changed into his image and just as all of us are pursuing that in our hearts. And so I hope that you know that, hey, we're not here to bash one particular people group. We're here to love sinners. That's what we're here for. And this talks about a lot of sin. As I said before, I don't want to just single out one sin. I did that because of of what I said earlier. But listen, there's other sins here that we need to be looking at. We need to be looking at them with an open heart and saying, God, is this something that I'm struggling with? Am I struggling with being a drunkard? Has alcohol gained the upper hand in my life to where that's what I'm thinking about when I get off of work and that's the first thing I go to? Is this something that in my life is I'm practicing and I'm not fighting against it, I'm not struggling against it, I'm not trying to change? We need to ask ourselves those questions because this is a very strong warning and we cannot brush over this warning this morning. It's among the strongest warnings that you will find in Scripture. Now there are some whose theology says or would lead them to believe that this is only a hypothetical warning since it's given to believers. Those that are in the once saved, always saved camp, they would look at this and they would say, oh, that's just a hypothetical warning for believers. But listen, that's not being honest either. That's not being honest with the scripture because that is not what Paul is saying. This text is clearly a warning to all who are believers and are practicing any of the ten things on this list as a way of life. You are in danger of not inheriting the kingdom of God. Because these behaviors are not compatible with the kingdom of God. There's no other way to interpret that. It means what it says, period. So now Paul, in his typical fashion though, he now is going to bring the Corinthians back to a reminder of their true identity. And this is what we're going to close with in verse 11. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed 
but you were sanctified, but you were justified. The blessed conjunction, right? I praise God for those phrases there. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You know, in accordance with our new identity in Jesus Christ, Paul reminds us of what Jesus has done. Before the good news about Jesus, some of the Corinthians were living lifestyles that were mentioned on that list. But when they heard the gospel message and they trusted in Jesus Christ and Him crucified, at least three things happened that, are, that happened to each one of them spiritually. First, he says they were washed. This is regeneration. This is being born again. This is when sins are forgiven and guilt and shame are, re, are, are removed. And we are made new in Christ's image. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. And listen, how do we stay washed? Well, we confess our sin. We confess sin when it happens. When we mess up, when we blow it, we need to cultivate a lifestyle of confession. Lord, I blew it. Lord, I messed up. Lord, I didn't want to do this again, but I did. Forgive me, Lord. Wash me anew. That's the attitude we need to cultivate. And then secondly, he says sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart from the world. We're the people of God. We're called to now pursue the knowledge of the Lord. We're called to follow Him. That's what sanctification is all about. It's a process of lifelong pursuing Jesus. Lifelong pursuing righteousness. Hey, we're going to mess up. We're going to slip back. We're going to have setbacks from now time to time. We're going to mess up. But God knows that. God understands that. That's why we have the precious blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse us again. We confess. We ask for forgiveness. We, we move forward in the name of the Lord. We don't stop that fight. We don't stop that struggle. We're called to pursue Him. That's what sanctified means. And thirdly, we're justified. This is one of the greatest Bible truths ever. This is, if not the greatest. Justified means just as if I never sinned. Just as if I never sinned. Can you believe it? The Father sees us like that in Christ Jesus. It is known as the great exchange. He, knew no sin. he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. Do you notice that all three of those verbs are in the past tense? They're all past tense, because that's, and that's on purpose. It reflects God's perspective for each person who trusts in Christ as their Lord and Savior. If you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, listen, you're in the most secure place you could ever be. Don't ever give up on that. Don't ever turn away from that. Because Jesus Christ has washed you. He sanctified you. And he has justified you. It's a beautiful transformation. In the moment that you trust Christ, you are washed and set apart unto God and justified in God's presence. But listen, that doesn't give you license to then go and live your life the way that you want. God didn't save you so that you would be the same person in 10 years that you are today. Jesus Christ has saved you because he is transforming you. He's into restoration. He is into this work of beautifying and glorifying his children. It's one of the great things that he does. In light of what Jesus has done for us, church, we are to live in the present tense by the principles of our future reality. Let's not forget that. 
And by God's grace and by his mercy, we are to become the people of God that we already are because of what Jesus has done for us. I'll close with this. In Costa Rica, uh, living down there, we ate, uh, you know, we lived there for almost 10 years. We, we ate a lot of rice and beans. It was the staple part of the diet down there, rice and beans. Beans and rice and Jesus Christ, we always said. But we used to have those, that, that, those rice and beans, and they would always serve it with tortillas. And whenever I could, I would get my hands on one of those flour tortillas. They were really into corn. It was mostly corn tortillas. But when we had a flour tortilla, I'd grab one of the flour tortillas, and we'd take those black beans and put them on that white tortilla, and then I'd wrap it up, and then I'd eat it, and it was delicious. Hey, somebody texted me at the end of last service, and they said this to me. It was hilarious. Uh, May God eternally wrap our black beans in tortillas of righteousness. And I just think that's a great way to end our service today. Not only are we hungry and we're about to go get some lunch, but we're talking about justification at the same time. May God eternally wrap the black beans of our sin in the robes of righteousness. It's the great exchange, guys. Jesus, Jesus gives us a robe of righteousness that covers our sin. And when God looks at you and looks at me, he sees only the white, the pure bride, the robe of righteousness that comes from his son, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful thing. He doesn't see all the gunk. He doesn't see what we're struggling with today. But guess what? That doesn't mean that we just sit back and continue to struggle and not change. Hey, we are to enter into training, church, a training process that brings us to to, to a point where one day our character uh, is going to be solidified into eternity, for all eternity. And, and we are going to step into eternity with that character that we have been molded and shaped with through this lifetime, through all these trials, through all these uh, tribulations. And we step into eternity with that character and our capacity to love the Lord and worship Him and serve Him is so much greater because we don't have the flesh anymore. Amen? <laughs> we don't have the temptations of the world anymore. Praise the Lord for that moment. I look forward to it with all my heart. Let's pray.